well, first off, I'm actually really excited to be up here, and only about 90% as nervous as I thought I'd be. So, um, I guess I should start with saying, yeah, I'm glad to be up here. Um, but I want to talk a little bit tonight about our pride. Um, and so, Brent's kind of been leading us through the book of John this semester so far. Um, so, several months ago, I made the very, very last-second decision to apply for seminary. So I've been taking classes this fall um, just online. And one of, the three, one of the realizations I had upon deciding to do that was I should probably take advantage of the fact that I get to work with RUF and I should finally get up here and teach. So, um, yeah, so after deciding to do classes this, uh, this summer, um, I told Brandon about wanting to teach a large group. And yeah, so here we are tonight. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to continue our, serv- our series tonight through the book of John. Um, and as Brennan kind of read a little bit ago, uh, we heard the part of the story where Jesus restores the sight um, to the blind man by smearing some mud over his eyes. Um, and I needed him to read that just for a little bit of context tonight. Um, but what we're actually going to spend time talking about and looking at is the rest of that entire chapter um, and kind of what happens after the miracle. Um, because while we do need the healing the blind man received, we also have a lot in common with the other characters that kind of start showing up in the story. Um, and we have to talk about the way that Jesus responded to them and the way that he deals with the blind man and these other characters because I think there's things we need to learn from all of them. Um, but before I even get into that, I actually have to confess a couple of things. Um, first, public speaking has kind of been like one of the banes of my existence. Um, I realized that freshman... So, backstory, homeschooled, like, kindergarten through 12th grade. So, I never had to do, like, presentations in front of anybody. But then freshman year, I decided to, like, take speech and get it over with, like most freshmen I knew. Um, And I tended to talk, like, 70 miles an hour. Um, So, my, like, six-minute speeches often finished at, like, three minutes. Um, But I figured out, after, like, the first speech... Um, just like one small trick that would actually help me get through the rest of them. And that, um, and none of you poised to use students would ever do something this, this embarrassing. But I found that there was a particular girl in my class that I figured out that if I followed her up, my speech just immediately looked 10 times better. Um, <laughs> which is terrible. I know, I know. Um, but that is just like what nervous freshman Joey did. So I figured out there was this girl. I don't remember her name now. Um, her speeches were actually pretty good, but she would usually start off with playing with her hair a little bit, and then she would switch between holding her foot up with her left hand for a little bit and then switch to the right, and she would do that throughout the entire speech. And she did this for every single speech for the rest of the semester. So my pride inflated a little bit then, um, and this kind of started to reveal something about myself and then I was quickly realizing that I'm really good at the comparison game. Um, I knew that if I could get up and just look a little bit more poised than her, or if I could look a little bit more confident in my speech, even if I was talking 70 miles an hour, um, I'd at least look, I wouldn't look like the worst person in the class. Um, and so, yeah, I got really good at that comparing game, and that helped me get through that class. But this leads me to my second confession. Um, and then I knew that that was really only like one side of that comparison game because we don't just compare ourselves with people we think we're better than. We tend to also look at the people we think that are better than us and compare ourselves against them too. 
So I knew even asking you to teach at large group this semester, I have to follow up Brent, who's really only been followed up by other pastors from the area. So I started putting all the pressure on myself to come up with this awesome sermon and get up here and deliver it perfectly. Um, so admittedly, in the weeks leading up till tonight, um, I've probably spent more time thinking about like a sexy introduction to this sermon than on the content. Um, I wanted like the perfect like token amounts of office quotes with C.S. Lewis. Um, I wanted to have per- three perfect points that all started the same letter, like a good Presbyterian. Um, I wanted to remain completely calm like he does. And I even wanted to be able to slow down really slow and talk with a lot of intentionality to just to draw the right amount of effect to what I'm saying and get everyone to pay attention again. Um, and I wanted to make sure I could do these things so that when people left tonight, they would be thinking, wow, that's such an awesome sermon. Like Joey's got up there and crushed it tonight. But on the flip of that, I also wanted to be able to go up to those same people with a kind of fake bashfulness and say, no, 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 it wasn't really that great. Like, don't worry about it. All while kind of like exploding with pride inside. Um, yeah, so no critiques needed for me, only praise. The irony of all of that is that tonight we're actually talking about pride. Um, and so it was, it was last week that I finally got to kind of concentrate on this sermon. And I was talking to some intern friends of mine, um, specifically just my friend Jaina. Um, and she was... We were talking about my introduction, and it was even in talking to her that I was kind of realizing the irony of being prideful and kind of like my goals for this intro compared to the actual pride, pride that I was showing doing that. And I knew that she had just helped me figure out my intro. Um, I knew that I had to get up here and talk about the pervasiveness of pride in my life, um, even while preparing a sermon about pride. Um, so with that confession out of the way, um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. And as we kind of prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Uh, So, Father, we thank you for this night. And I thank you so much for the opportunity to to be an intern here at TU, to work with RUF, um, and to get to know the students at this campus, um, get to know their lives well, and just come alongside them. Um, And I thank you for the friendships um, that I've made in doing this and the way that you've allowed them to to love me in return. Um, And I pray for just our evening tonight. As we study your word, um, Lord, I pray that you would help it to be convicting to us, um, but that you would convoke, or you would convict us, but also just code us with your gospel um, to realize our need of you and how you're you're going to be the way that that our pride starts to dissolve. Um, we ask in your name, Amen. Um, so, over the last eight weeks, uh, Brent's been leading us through a series of sermons about the encounters of Jesus, which is like our, our series title this semester. Um, and brought, Brent has taught us the ways that Jesus meets people kind of from all walks of life, different statures and just different religious understandings. Um, and he's met them with who he is as their Lord and King. And throughout the book of John, we've been learning about the gospel that doesn't discriminate. Uh, it Kind of in the first couple of weeks, Brent talked about a guy named Nicodemus. And the gospel reaches Nicodemus, um, who was this dude in the early part of John that he looks really put together. Um, he was kind of like the, the Tim Tebow, if you will, of the Christian life for his day. Um, he definitely would have had like the, the black paint with John 3.16 on it. Um, 
Yet Jesus looks at him and he tells him that in order for him to be born again, his righteousness wasn't going to be enough. And that he still falls short just like everybody else. And on the total end, other end of the spectrum, in John chapter 4, Jesus uh, encounters this woman at the well who is so, so kind of just buried and sunk in her, in the deepness of her shame, that the prospect of a gospel, which drips in the grace and justice that it does, could even reach a woman like her with a reputation despised by everyone she knew, seemed unfathomable. Yet the salvation of the gospel became true for them, and that same gospel is true for you and I tonight. Um, so we're going to turn to the book of John and look at chapter 9, verses 13 through 34. Um, so it's not the whole section on your, your handout there, but we're just going to read that, this first, that first bit. So in chapter 9, verses 13, it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since, his, since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he was blind, and he had received his sight, until they called his parents of the man who, was, who had received his sight. And they asked him, Is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, and as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Then the man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and, how, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. <sighs> Let me go back here. So, as I mentioned tonight, um, we're going to talk about pride. But before I can even get to kind of how pride relates to this passage, I wanted to give you all a couple categories to think about. Um, just kind of have in mind as we're kind of working through this passage. Um, and not just the superior kind of in-your-face, arrogant pride that is often you looking at yourself too much. 
kind of like the Michael Scotts of the world or the Regina Georges. Um, I also want us to be considering kind of the sneakiness of the, the contrast that superior pride, um, and that's the inferior kind of self-deprecating, quiet, and judgmental prides we also all struggle with. The unsuspecting pride seen in the, the Angelas from the office or the April Ledgates for my Parks and Rec people, um, because we're a lot more like them than we'd like to believe. It's kind of why we find them so funny. Um, so we're going to start with looking at the two different faces of pride. And uh, superior pride, the first one, says things like, I'm the freaking man. Superior pride makes us expert players in the comparison game. And we get really, really good at it. Kind of like I was in my speech class. It keeps us thinking or saying things like, no one else could run Hogov the way I can. Or why should they even apply? They need me to be president next year because every other candidate kind of stinks. Um, why does this kid keep coming to play basketball? He sucks. Doesn't she know that she needs a figure like mine to wear a dress like that? Why does this guy keep talking at Bible study? He doesn't know anything about the Bible. So what is it for you? What is it that superior pride is making you believe about yourself? What is it about you that makes you think, I am more special than her or better than him? What keeps you thinking, well, at the least... I'm not like that guy. Or at least I don't dress like her. Or at least I don't talk like he does. It's the superior pride that totally inhibits our ability to see good things in others. Or even hear what they have to say. Because the real detriment of pride is that it just totally blinds us. Kind of like it did the Pharisees. Superior pride is the very thing that likens us to the Pharisees in that passage. The Pharisees really didn't have much of a category for being wrong. They were revered within the society. Um, and coincidentally, they actually thought they were really good at the compassion game. And they never thought they would be suspect to the comparison game. So while their intentions were actually probably pretty compassionate towards this blind man at first, their intentions quickly switched from compassionate to pretty judgmental to basically an all-out like sinner witch hunt. Their pride made them more concerned with what day the boy was healed than on the very miracle of his sight, if his sight being restored. Their pride caused, him, caused them to turn their questioning to the guy's parents because they deemed him a sinner and too naive to even speak for himself. And honestly, for supposed experts on the Bible, their pride got in the way of them seeing one of the prophecies from the Old Testament coming true and unfolding right in front of their eyes. Um, we know in Isaiah 35, we are told that when the Christ was to come, it says, "The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf un- and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy." So this happens right in front of them, um, which kind of from the outside we can look at it and be like, "Yep, they're definitely super prideful." And so probably a lot of what I just said about superior pride isn't really new information for any of you. Um, It doesn't shock anyone in this room because we know all that stuff about pride. It's often the stuff that we do, we say, we think, in which we actually kind of catch ourselves being prideful. Um, But I don't want us to just look at that part of pride. 
um, I really do want us to consider kind of its quiet other sibling, um, the inferior pride. Um, and while we need to repent of both of them deeply, probably daily, um, it's not just the superior ways that hurt people and the ways that we need to repent of things. Um, so I want you all to consider this contrast um, because I think we're all plagued from the inferior form of pride too. This form isn't so much about how special you think you are, but it lies within the deep, ashamed, and navel-gazing thoughts of our hearts. The thoughts that have us so consumed about our imperfections that we stopped hearing those around us, that we don't believe the real sentiments from people or from God. Now I realize for many, many of you in this room, myself included, there have definitely been things that have probably been said to you or done to you, um, by people close to you, like your friends, maybe your parents, maybe you had a professor do something that was just completely unwarranted. Um, those things were absolutely wrong. Things that probably cause a lot of emotional pain, um, that we can barely talk about. Things that make you feel so anxious in the middle of the day that you stop breathing or that keep you up at night. Things that make you push yourself into one more club or join one more leadership group to perfect a resume just to prove everyone wrong. I am good enough. I do amount to something. And sometimes you're proving yourself wrong too in that attempt. Um, so with all that said, I'm certainly not trying to kind of shame anybody for something that's been done to you because the reality is that was wrong. Whatever it was, whatever maybe that thing is, shouldn't have happened. Um, but I mean this with as much compassion and grace as I can probably possibly express. I think it's what lies in the feelings um, and what you do with them and how you don't let others help you that can kind of lead you into that inferior form of pride that we're talking about. The inferior pride that festers deep within us and shuts down nice things people say to us and the soul concentration on self um, kind of in this way stems from the same root problem as the arrogant prides that are so obvious on the outside. We try to look pretty humble and bashful even, and we tend to kind of apologize for our very existence. We drop the words, I'm sorry, every other sentence. We drop them with our needs and with the things we need to tell people. When we do this, we're still kind of looking inward and focusing on self and placing those opinions about ourselves higher than how God sees us. And every time we shrug off compliments or ignore opportunities to redirect that praise to God, it's kind of like we're stealing his glory and not just for ourselves. We're kind of stealing it and then just like throwing it in a trash can. If you want to be someone who truly matters, you have to stop obsessing about being somebody who matters. And if you want to feel like someone who matters, tonight I'm urging you to fill your heart with the message of the gospel. The gospel that says you're a beloved son and daughter. I'm asking you to allow your friends into your stories and into those hard places so they can say real things to you. They can tell you how much they care about you. I'm asking you to let the word of God so overwhelm you by the declaration it says about your adoption into God's family 
and its invitation to be to become one of his heirs just to so overwhelm your heart that this inferior pride starts to kind of melt away. And honestly, if you want to be somebody who can take a compliment, I think we all know those people who turn every single one of them down. Instead of kind of letting that false sense of humility creep up in us, you can say thank you. You can give credit to where credit's due. You can acknowledge that you've been blessed by God and that you're a child of the king. You need to believe that. So I did get one of my goals of this intro right, and I, I did find at least one C.S. Lewis quote. Actually, I think I have two. So in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he says that pride is the ruthless, sleepless, and unsmiling concentration on self that is the mark of hell. So if pride is the mark of hell, it is the, it's the sin that's, that's trying to send you there as fast as possible. It is a sin that leads to death because it blinds us to the need of our salvation. And this kind of brings us to our next point, which is pride's deadliness. So we're going to pick back up in our story, um, back up in verse 35. We're going to finish out this story. Because while the, the Pharisees are sitting there doubting, doubting this guy and trying to talk to his parents and go back to him and so kind of perplexed by it all, um, it picks back up in 35. And it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, the blind man. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, for those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What's really interesting um, is that Jesus says, For judgment I came, and to make those who cannot see see and for those who see so that they can be blind and we see jesus explaining that it's actually easier for somebody who's never seen anything to finally open their eyes and see something real than for those who have always thought they've seen to see something at all pride's greatest deadliness is that it keeps us out of touch with god the bible even says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble we need to learn from the humble one. We need to refocus our gaze on Jesus. We need him to open our eyes anew. But how are we to learn from him? How do we actually focus our gaze on him? How do we stay in touch with God? What do we do with the pride that is keeping us from even seeing our need? What if we think our eyes are already open? How can we allow God to actually open them for us? These are all the right questions to be asking. Questions the Pharisees didn't ask and definitely didn't want answers to. And questions that we really don't want answers to either. We really like to see things our way and interpret things by our own wisdom because our pride makes us think we have things under control. This passage tells us 
that this is actually what makes us blind and keeps us blind. And on the flip of this, the ignorance of that superior pride that's showing up, against in the, showing up again in the Pharisees, who are questioning once again, are we blind? They were so consumed by their own discernment and abilities to grasp the very thing that Jesus said they needed. And that was to have their sight restored as well. And we do this too, which is really sad. We also think we have it pretty figured out. And we, we kind of ask the cheeky, are we blind question as well. Only when we ask it, it usually sounds a little bit more like this. I already know about that Christian stuff, so just let me live my life. I can change later when I'm done with college. This is my time to have fun. I'll worry about, I'll worry about all that later. We take that. We kind of set ourselves some limits that we think kind of protect us from breaking the rules. And we say, I just see that commandment in the Bible differently. Like drinking under 21 is just not that big of a deal. I'm more responsible than everybody else who does it. Plus all my friends do. And I just, I don't think we're doing anything wrong. I know my limits with drinking. What happened that last weekend with him or her, it was just like a one-time thing. Like, it just brought out a side of me that I, that's not really me. Um, but when those things happen, we're reminded of how we fail and how our, our wisdom and our sight doesn't actually protect us from doing what's wrong. In fact, it's the very thing that blinds us and keeps us doing it. We often realize our mistake, but are too proud to admit them. We definitely don't admit them to ourselves. We're definitely not admitting them to everybody around us. We're kind of just hoping nobody sees. So how can your eyes be really opened? How can you repent of trying to see on your own? How can we live humbly and make our pride just shut up for once? Uh, which kind of leads us to our last point. Pride's antidote. So, second C.S. Lewis quote, quote a hit. Um, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And by looking down, we cannot see who is above us. And friends, we have to look to him who sits on the throne of heaven. We have to stop looking down on ourselves and navel-gazing and self-deprecating and judging others so that we can finally lift our eyes and see the person who's setting the example for us. If you want to dissolve your pride, you can't look for humility in yourself. As much as we want to, that's actually our pride talking too. So let's zoom back in for a second. And we're going to look at verse 35 through 41, one more, or through 39 one more time. So once again, Jesus heard that they, the Pharisees, had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 
Friends, tonight, if we want to see, we have to be able to concentrate our gaze onto the one who showed the ultimate form of humility and humbled himself into the form of a servant. To the one who washed the feet of the disciples and went to the cross to pay for our sins and pride. At the cross, the debt for sin was finally paid. And the debt for our pride was paid too. At the cross, Jesus made, it, Jesus made it so we, the blind, lost, and fumbling people who keep trying to see things their way and get by, could finally find the love and forgiveness he has in us. Um, we need the cross to destroy and heal our pride. And that means we're going to have to admit that we're evil. That we are moral failures in sight of Jesus without his saving grace. And to accept that grace, Jesus offers means, Jesus offer means that you just have to admit your need of that grace. All you need is need. Kind of like we sang tonight, or in Come You Sinners, I asked Quinn to play that specifically. Because this quote from it came to mind. And in, in verse 4, it says... Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he, or excuse me, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. So let, let Jesus' example show you your need. Let Jesus meet your need. And allow him to heal your blind eyes. Let Jesus in to work on your heart. And heal you of your selfishness and pride. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this night. Um, Lord, and thank you for... Thank you for all that you've you've done for us. And all that you do for our lives. Thank you for providing a, a way that... Our eyes will be opened. Lord, and thank you for setting setting before us um, the way in which our blindness will go away and we can stop trying to to navigate everything on our own. Um, For we're lost and we're in desperate need of your grace. Lord, at your cross, it is made new for us and made real for us. Lord, and I pray that you would use um, tonight's message to just help us think about the ways that, that pride has kind of saturated both our intentional ways and in just our private thoughts. Um, Lord, and I pray that you would dissolve that pride um, through the example of, of your son. And we ask in your name. Amen.